Well, good morning again. We, uh, you always know we're in the Minor Prophets when you got titles like Cold Love, you know, like, whew, we have to shake up out of that. But we are, in fact, looking at the second aspect of the book of Malachi. And I'll be reminded of the reality that Malachi embraced and faced about 2,400 years ago. And as Solomon said, there ain't much new under the sun. He didn't say ain't, but I thought I'd say that just to throw that in, get everybody fired up a little this morning. We're going to take a look at the idea of uh, worship today, in particular the kind of worship that was being brought during that time as he revived them to a time of spiritual renewal. Malachi's name comes from the word malach in Hebrew. It means my messenger. Uh, It is the idea that God has a burden for his people, and he has chosen Malachi to bring that burden, this oracle, this weight that's sort of on God's mind and heart. Their situation is of such importance, of such weight, that he sends a prophet to shake them up a bit. Remember, the minor prophets will follow a a rather simple formula. The first part of the book, he's sort of in your face, and then at the end, he extends grace. So we're still in the in uh, in your face part of the book, and so he is bringing this oracle, this burden from God, not against his people, but to them by way of spiritual renewal, spiritual reminder. He is the final prophet of the Old Testament, writing at the end of... uh, Uh, All of Israel's history is recorded in the Old Testament, about 432. And it is unique to Malachi that he is writing to children of the exile. A crucial moment in Israel's history was when the Babylonians defeated Jerusalem or in 586 B.C. And Jeremiah saw that and he wept. And they were taken back to what would be modern-day Iraq. And now some 140 years later... They've returned over three separate returns. And so what's crucial to the spiritual makeup and background of these individuals receiving originally the book of Malachi is they are descendants of the exile. They might have been born in exile. Some had just come back 15 years prior with Nehemiah or maybe 25 years prior with Ezra. Zerubbabel had come 100 years before, but that's who they are. Many or most are born in exile. That's all they know. And there is a disappointment with God that is pervading the people of God. And they're beginning to ask him questions. If we've been in exile, where were you? What's up with that, Lord, that we got taken captive by a foreign pagan king, got drugged back to their place, spent up to 70 years there, our people did, and now we get to come back. The temple that you talk about that that David and Solomon built, that's been knocked down and a new one has been rededicated by Haggai just prior to this. But it's not like anything like the old one. The good old days are a part of their stories, but they didn't get to experience them. And they're beginning to wonder, how good is God and does he really care for us? Does he love us? As the returns began to unfold, a societal decay took over. Because as a man thinks, so is he. As they thought about God and they saw him as not all that much, not as powerful as their forefathers might have, they began to kind of unravel spiritually. Their nation had become unraveled as far as the people as had been taken back. Politically, they're still in a mess. And now spiritually, 
they're following suit, unfortunately. A societal decay is what prompts Malachi to come with this burden that God has for his people to renew them back. And so he's going to do that through a basic overview of, of calling Israel back and God's desire to prompt them to repentance from their spiritual indifference and to renew their hope again in the promises to come through the Messiah, God's final messenger. This four-chapter little book has got the first couple of three chapters sort of tough stuff. We need to get better on this. And finally, the promise of Elijah and then the Messiah at the end. And so he looks forward to what we already know, that the Messiah will come. And Malachi is unique in his presentation in that he revolves the book around four or seven separate questions. Seven questions that the people are asking. And these questions collectively reveal the spiritual indifference of the people. Last week we took a look at the concept in verse one, chapter or chapter one, verse two. How have you loved us? And he answered, "Well, I, I chose you. I chose Jacob, not Esau." And we talked about that concept of love being that of a choice. This week, their question in chapter one, verse six is, "How have we despised your name?" And we're going to see that they were improperly bringing sacrifice, offering cheap worship. And that will be the essence of verses 6 through 14. The book will go on to talk about other questions that they have. What reasons were our sacrifices unacceptable to you? Where is the God of justice? How shall we return to you? How have we robbed you? What have we spoken against you? You can sort of hear the acidity in their voice as they speak with incredulousness. How have you loved us? How have we despised your name? This is a people group that are disappointed with God. And that's why it makes this passage is relevant to the individuals who first received Malachi's sermons and later his book, to us today some 2,400 years later, because the people of God can struggle with spiritual indifference. And we, believe it or not, can ask questions like this. We can call into account God's love and and his honor and respect. We can call into account his sacrificial system, even the, the system which culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can question his justice and, 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 and talk about that we might not want to return to him. We can question the, the money that he asked to, uh, to be involved in the things of the kingdom of God. And we can involve ourselves in questions about that reveal the arrogance that we might display to God. This is not an easy book. This is the in-your-face portion before the grace. But it's a, it's a family discussion. God is sitting down his people and taking us to the spiritual woodshed a bit. And what we can learn from Malachi and his audience 2,400 years ago can be very applicable and relevant for us today. For the subject of cheap worship is relevant then and can be relevant today. In order to look at worship biblically, I thought it would, first of all, be wise to go back and take a look at the sacrificial worship system under which they lived, which will ultimately culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. But I wanted you to know what they experienced every day and how the Bible, through the progression of Revelation, is teaching us about how to approach God. And then we'll take a look in the book of Malachi itself on how not to do it. We're going to see what God wanted from Exodus and Leviticus, what they're doing in stark contrast to that, and then end with some principles of reminding us of acceptable worship to God for our time 
in this day and in this place. If you were to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40, there's a, a couple of verses that I just think you should just highlight up. Now, unfortunately, Exodus chapter 40 is the last chapter of the book of Exodus, and it sort of gets bogged down into in a rather difficult section of Exodus. Exodus is a pretty cool book. There's all sorts of stuff going on, you know, the, the, the coming out of, of Egypt and the, the Passover and all sorts of majestic things that God does. He gets the nation down in Mount Sinai and gives them a sense of identity by giving them new rules and regulations. He gives, issues the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are just the first ten of 613 laws and rules and ordinances that God gave the, the, the people of Israel known as the Mosaic Law. And then you continue reading and your eyes start crossing a bit. This is that portion of your Bible where the pages might stick together a bit because in chapter 25 he starts to talk about this tabernacle, this outdoor tent of meeting in which God is going to meet his people and then he spends the next 15 chapters describing the details of that tent, of that tabernacle. And he tells us what kind of wood and what kind of wood should be on the sacrifice and what kind of fabric and what the, the holes uh, that, that hold up the, uh, the wooden walls should be like as it was a movable tent that had to be taken all over the place. And if you're in that through the Bible reading program, by the time you get to Exodus 25 through 40, you begin to question God's will for your life. You just don't know if this is something that a human being can do, okay? But if you hang with it, you'll come to chapter 40. And in chapter 40, this great construction project ends, and then we see this verse, or these two verses. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, which had been the tabernacle, which was what was being built in the previous 15 chapters. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God came down and lived in the house that was built for him. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Is there a little phrase that appears sort of out of place in there? Great construction project given by God to Moses who delegates all these to these skilled craftsmen to build this house for God. God says, good job, signs off on the certificate of occupancy, comes and lives in the house, but who couldn't join him? Notice, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Moses was not able to enter. Where does that put you and me? The average guy who might have been working on the temple, the, the average gal who might have been working the fabrics and, and, and preparing the meals, and they hear that Moses is not able to enter the tent of meeting, they're going to ask questions, you know, something like this. How can common man approach a holy God? This is how the book of Exodus ends with this tension. Mankind not being able to go to God's house and visit him. How can we approach such a holy God? Through sacrificial worship would be the answer. Well, is there a, a place where, uh, that's talked about this sacrificial worship? Is there a biblical book that describes the laws and rituals of sacrificial worship? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's the very next book, the book of Leviticus. See, the Bible makes sense if you hang with it. And if you see these beautiful shadows and pictures of what we know ultimately to be the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, this is where that came from. And throughout the book of Leviticus is a very, frankly, complex and comprehensive approach to God so that regular folks 
can come and be in the presence of God. And we learn many of the things that we're familiar with today. The book of Leviticus describes this array of offerings. Three of them are dedicatory. You would dedicate, it was symbolic that you would dedicate your whole self. You would be involved in the preparation of these offerings, but they were to remind you that I'm going to give this offering and it's going to be completely consumed and metaphorically, figuratively, that's what I'm offering you, God, all of myself. And it took time and energy and effort and expense to prepare that offering. And those spiritual thoughts is what were to come in your head as you prepared it. And then you could come and enjoy the fellowship or, or, or the, the peace offering, a communal meal that you and others would prepare, give some to the priest, you would eat the meal together, and some would be reserved just for God. That later is, is seen more clearly in the Passover and even in our Lord's Supper, a celebration of our communion with God and each other. And then there are offerings that, that, that had to atone for uh, the sins that the community of faith might have been involved with. This is familiar to us in a 1 John 1.9 kind of idea, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and right to cleanse us of our sins and, and, and forgive us of all unrighteousness. This idea of expiation or appeasing or atoning was behind the sin offering and the guilt offering. And the priests were crucial to this whole system. They would explain these offerings, and it's how people understood they could now approach God. Because at the heart of worship, as designed by God, is the sacrificial system and its benefits. That's why we're calling it sacrificial worship, is the proper thing that God has for us. The sacrificial system and its benefits were those of cleansing from sin and access to God. That's what the whole system was designed to do. The idea of, of this system was, was captured in some of these very rare photographs that I've found in, in, in my attic. Uh, some would say I was actually there, but I'll, I'll just leave those people alone. If you'll notice, the camps were properly placed around this tent of meeting, this portable tabernacle that will later become the temple. And it was a place where you would meet God. God would be in here as, his, as the pillar and the cloud would come here, as we saw at the end of Exodus 40. But notice there's only one gate, only one approach. And the priest would meet you and would explain to you the full significance of what it was that you were doing. So you might come and say, I want to have a peace offering. I, want to, and I need a sin offering or a burnt offering. And he would explain the larger idea to, to you, and then take your offering, which could have been a bull or a heifer or a goat or a turtle dove, depending on your economic abilities, and he would go sacrifice that in some form on this large barbecue pit. And the smoke was going up all the time, and that's what they knew every day. That's how you met God. That morphed later into uh, temples like this that were intended to make you feel small to be remindful of God's grandeur and greatness. Y'all ever been to churches up north or in the east and you walk in? One of my favorites is the the chapel at Princeton and you walk in, or or in New York you'll see churches like this and you just look up in this huge spire and it just goes up and up and up. And it's skinny and long and high and all of a sudden, you know, your five foot ten self just kind of shrinks down. And you look over here on the wall and, and you say, there's somebody buried 
in that wall and, and you're reminded of your humanity and, and your, the, the shortness of life and the preciousness of it and, and the importance of this place. And that's what these temples were all about. Great places where, you could sac- where they would sacrifice and, and be cleansed to remind you of the need to approach God in the proper way. I'm setting you up for what Malachi is going to be describing is their improper approach. This is what God had designed. I wish there were opportunities to, take, uh, to go on some field trips when we're in heaven, little electives that you could sign up for. This is where I would go. I would love to go back and see moments like this where the Levites, the priest, led the people in praise, led the people in offering, explained to the individuals on the great days what was going on. The Levitical choir would sing and, and blow trumpets as the book of Psalms would be sung and played. It would have been a grand thing to see. Great time to have been around. Such a barbecue pit I have never seen, right? That's some serious barbecue in there, guys. The smoke would go up, as the Bible says, like prayer. Incense would come up, and God would smell that pleasing aroma and be pleased and accept, remember that, and accept the offering. He would say that's a good offering, done the correct way with a full heart. Some thoughts before we go into Malachi about what we should be looking for in worship. First of all, worship is a reaction to God's greatness. All that we just saw was intended to make us mindful that God is great. We're going to see that theme show up in Malachi today. God is jealous, if you will, about his greatness and his name being recognized as great. Worship honors and respects God on his terms and according to his characteristics. If worship is a reaction to God, then I need to know first what is pleasing to God and revolve myself around that, rearrange myself around what he likes and what is pleasing to him. Ultimately, worship is about giving our very best to and for God. That will be at the core of Malachi's indictment against the people to whom he writes. Worship involves the totality of life. If, you've, if you could make it through Exodus 25 through 40 and then make it through the first oh, eight or nine chapters of Leviticus where all those offerings were first described, the next thing you're bogged down again because he's talking about the cleansing the mildew on your wall and making sure that this skin rash is taken care of. He's making the point very early in the Bible that God wants to be involved in all aspects of our life. So worship is not a thing that we just do on a portion of this hour on Sunday morning. It's not just singing. Worship is a lifestyle revolving around the person of the great God of the Bible. And that's what is on the heart of Malachi as he brings his message to the people. I love what Eugene Peterson says. Worship is the strategy. Interesting word. Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Worship is the time and place that we assign for deliberate attentiveness to God. When I was studying, I I circled a few of those words, strategy. Strategy requires some forethought. Yeah, I I gotta plan this. This is important. I'm not just walking in there and do whatever I want. This is a strategy in which I am going to be in the presence of God and his people in a special way. Even today, that's true. And I want, to, I want it to matter. Deliberate attentiveness. 
Think about how our lives just sort of robotize us, and we just sort of go through the day. We know what to do. As you get more skilled in your job and in life, you can kind of work through the day almost on default, almost an automatic. This is that attending deliberately to something, to have that strategy to do it. Worship is offered, and I was soberly reminded with this principle again at the end, of my study, worship from God's perspective is either accepted or rejected. It'll cause us to swallow a little there. Hmm? We tend to think if we offer worship, we're good. That's only one side of the coin. Worship is offered, yes. From God's perspective, it is accepted or rejected. And we'll see that situation in Malachi here today. As we take a look now, and if you want to turn to Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 through 14, We're just going to make our way through these verses, extract some principles, put on our observing glasses, because it is quite an indictment that Malachi is bringing. And if we're not not careful to read carefully, we'll miss the egregiousness with which these individuals are now worshiping God. We've just seen the way that God wanted it. Now, unfortunately, it's sort of dwindled to what we're going to see in Malachi 1, 6 through 14, and then we'll ramp it back up at the end and remind ourselves of what God would have us do in proper worship. We're going to see three components of their unacceptable worship. We're going to see them uh, come to to the worship table disrespectfully. We're going to see them bring sacrifices that are not proper. They are disqualified sacrifices, but they're taking shortcuts to bring these improper sacrifices And behind it all, because as a man thinks, so is he, again, we'll see the attitude that's really the foundation of all the service and all these activities, all these sacrifices they're bringing in the latter portion of our section today. So taking a look at verses 6 and 7, I wanted you to note a couple of things as we we go through here. Notice he's going to use a very common illustration, uh, true to all generations, all cultures, that sons and daughters honor parents. Typically, that's understood. He's going to make that case. A son honors his father, and a a servant, a worker, honors his master. Then if I am a father, God speaking, where is my honor? If I am a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. There are five words in this one verse that I think are worth spending a little time getting to know. They're old friends of the Bible. You'll see these terms throughout the Word of God, but they're particularly unique that they're all in this one verse. Uh, All these different tributaries, if you will, have all come to form one larger river that God wants to bring in this particular verse. Honor is our first word. This is the word kavod. It's normally translated glory. Okay? Now, not a lot of Hebrew words come over into English. This one does. You'll remember reading the legend of Sleepy Hollow and the tall, skinny guy on the horse? What was his name? You remember? Ichabod Crane, or Ichabod Crane. E in Hebrew means no. Kavod means glory. Unfortunately, the dude's name was No Glory Crane. Okay? Hope to have ruined that. I didn't mean to ruin that for you, but that's what it means from the Hebrew word. This concept of glory, this concept of honor, comes from this idea to be heavy. Literally, the word means to be heavy. 
But just like in all languages, there are literal usages of words and figurative usages of words. My day, about 30 years ago, most questions were answered by my friends with a statement like this, uh, oh man, that's, that's pretty heavy, what you just said. The idea of heavy is that of, I've got to think about that. It's important. We'll still use that term today. That's a heavy thought. Let me give it some attention, okay? To literal heaviness, to figurative importance is the idea behind honor or glory. Same word you'll see, for example, in the Ten Commandments, honor your mother and father. Treat them as heavy. Don't go there. Treat them as important, okay? Treat them as if they matter. Don't blow them off as if they're light. Treat them as if they're weighty and heavy, and you'll arrange yourself around their presence. That's the essence of one's relationship with God, to see him in his full honor or his full glory. The next word is this word respect. It's a normal word, yare in Hebrew, translated fear most of the time. Every once in a while it has this kind of shaking in your boots, terror, but generally it's the idea of reverence, respect, regard, so the two terms really serve as, as bookends. Treat God as important, as heavy, and respect him for who he is. Regard him. Have reverence for him. Now, we don't talk about this word much. In Malachi's 55 verses, 24 of them contain the phrase, Lord of hosts. In Hebrew, Yahweh Sabaoth. When Martin Luther was contemplating the principles of Psalm 46. Psalm 46, all about God being a bulwark, all strong, mighty fortress. In fact, there it is. He wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, from Psalm 146. And in the midst of it, he asked this question in the hymn, you ask who that might be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. It's an army designation for God. Sabah in Hebrew means host or armies. He is a five-star general, and at his disposal are millions and millions of angels who can do his bidding. And what he's setting us up for is, how dare you not treat me with that same honor and respect as the members of my armies do? It's a term that he uses when he's fired up. Think about Patton when he's walking on that stage at the first of the movie. That's Yahweh and Malachi. He's got a serious message for his people, and he's put on his best uniform, dusted off all of his medals, if you will, reminding his audience, I am the God of hosts. I am Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies. Did you notice to whom he was giving this address? Last week it was a general you, as if the community of faith was questioning where is God's love this week, it's the priests. The guys that were in charge of meeting you at that one gate, explaining to you the importance of that sin offering and that communal offering and that peace offering that you wanted to bring, explaining how this offering was really the fulfillment of what had said in Genesis that one day God is going to bring the seed of the woman that will crush the seed of the serpent that ultimately will become the Messiah. They don't know the full doctrine of Messiah at the time in which they're alive. But the priest is explaining he's primarily a teacher, and he's involved in the debauchery that we're about to see. 
at the heart of the problem in the community then was the worthless shepherd, as the book of Ezekiel would call priests like this. You're not caring for the people of God. You're taking shortcuts, and you're teaching them that God can be trifled with. You're not teaching them that God is great and glory and weighty and heavy and should be feared and and, and revered. You're showing that there's a system by which you can skate and just get by in your approach to God. We saw last week how this kind of thinking will ultimately lead to the Phariseeism of Jesus' day just a few hundred years later. That sort of ritual outward approach to God, but no heart turned toward Him. And lastly, God is concerned about His name. Hebrew word shem. We don't use the word often, but we're familiar with it enough. Someone was to say, oh, Larry. Larry has a good name in the community. We wouldn't think that Larry sounds cool. We would say the person behind Larry, the individual, his character, his full reputation. We pray in Jesus' name. It's not just something we tack on at the end of prayers. We're reminding God that we know that we're coming through his character, through his name. And so we invoke his reputation, his character in our request and a prayer. In Jesus' name, let it be so. We see in this one verse things that are important to God. His honor, his respect, that he's a little upset. He's using that general title. He's upset with the priests for their failing to do their duties, and he wants to preserve his name. Ten times the word name will show up in Malachi, six of them in the section of Scripture we're looking at today. The name of the Lord is important to him. His reputation not being soiled but rather be elevated is at the heart of his concern. And they respond to his statement with the question. It's now the second question of of seven that you'll see in Malachi. But you say, how have we despised your name? And he'll answer them by presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. They ask a question. He answers. They ask another question. And he says, by you asking that second question, show that you don't care about my name and you don't care about my title. You don't care about my table. By not receiving the instruction that you asked for, how have we despised your name? Answered by bringing bad food. They ask another question. He says, it's a revealing of your heart that you're not of, have my table and my thing most on your mind. And so the idea of disrespectful service is at the heart of God's concern in this particular section. Now, the sacrifices they were bringing, this is almost, it seems made up. If you don't read it carefully and don't notice the detail, you're just going to go, what? How can this be happening? But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, Is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. There it is again. They're bringing blind, lame, and sick sacrifices. Now, these are farmers. These are ranchers. They've got crops, and they've got cows and goats and things of that nature, and that's what they're bringing. And with the priest sort of helping them along, they've developed a system in which, in their mind, it's okay 
to bring this lamb that's about to die anyway from some disease. Well, let's just take that down to the temple, look good, walk into the temple so that everybody sees you walk into the temple with a, with a sacrifice. And then, and then the priest accepts that sacrifice on behalf of the Lord. That's how debauched the system had become. Now, when they came back from, from Iraq at, today, it would be Persian oversight uh, when Nehemiah brought them back some 15 years prior uh, to this writing. Uh, they, the Persians sent a governor to Israel. And so they were under two authorities, the commands of Yahweh and the temple, as well as the commands of their Persian governor. Very similar to what you see at the time of Jesus. Caesar and his guys, God and his guys. And so that's what he's talking about with this governor. He says, your Persian governor, would you take your Persian governor, a lamb that was lame, blind, and sick? And the answer, of course, is no, we wouldn't do that. Then why would you take that to me? Why would you bring that to me? The Lord is saying, you you can sort of see the heat kind of turn up a bit as this passage unfolds in his disgust for them. Now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive you kindly? What they've now added is presumption. He's saying, you guys are thinking this. I'm going to bring this sick, lame, bad sacrifice, and then you're going to ask God to graciously receive it. And God is basically going to say, you think I'm going to treat you kindly if you do that? If you come here knowing that you want to kind of go the side door, if you want to offer this cheap worship, and that's been in your heart from the beginning, you want me to bless that? And the answer obviously is he won't. Notice what he says here. Or that they were one among you who would shut the gates. That, I might, that we might not be able to uselessly kindle fire on the altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. You see what he's saying? I wish there was just one of you that would stop this hypocrisy and just close up the tabernacle. Just shut the gate at which the priests meet you. Okay, Just shut it down and quit uselessly getting the kindling out, starting the fire again for a sacrifice, for an animal that is lame, sick, or dying, because I'm not going to receive that. I want your heart, not just the outward expression of a sacrifice that's by the book. These sacrifices weren't even by the book. Notice, I am not pleased with you, and we talked about this principle earlier, nor will I accept an offering from you. Sacrificial worship is offered. What is the two possible responses to that? Accepted or rejected. In this case, he's rejecting these half-hearted, improper sacrifices because at the core of it is this spiritual indifference that Malachi is trying to shake them out of. And he had to get in their face pretty good to do it. At the core of it all was their attitude. As they came to the, to the tabernacle, their attitudes reflected that. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, notice the heat turning up now, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered in my name. And a grain offering that is pure, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 
but you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, and here it is, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from you? You see their attitudes? I'm going to go down to the temple again. How tiresome. Same old thing all the time. Sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice. Listen to the priest say something. Pay not attention. Offer the sacrifice. This is getting expensive, by the way. We better start taking some of our less than best. And they get in that cycle. They disdainfully sniff at it. We might hear an idea and go, it's silly. That's the, the depth of their spiritual indifference, unfortunately, that he's describing here. And this is what's, what we're capable of, unfortunately. We're not trying to advocate this, but he's trying to wake them up out of this. And one more thing you see at the end, not only were they bringing lame and sick, they were stealing others' stuff. So I steal your sheep, which was probably a good one, take it to the temple, looking all good, when I've committed a felony along the way. The, the hypocrisy is overwhelming. And the question again, should I receive that at your hand? The answer is obviously no, I'm not going to. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. One more indictment. It's a bait and switch. They're vowing in public they're going to take my best bull. I'm going to take my best bull and take it down to the priest to sacrifice it. I want you all to know that's what I'm going to do. And at the last minute, I get one of my less than best and take that one instead. Because that bull's too important to me. I need that money that he can give me. That's why he calls them swindlers who make a vow and then do something different. What we saw last week, their question, how have you loved us? God answers it. I chose you. That's how. I chose you from all the nations. This week, he asked the question, or they asked the question, how we despised you? His answer, quite simply, is, you're despising me by offering cheap worship. Stop it. As you're going to call them to repentance, call them out of their spiritual doldrums. Acceptable worship is seen in a variety of places in the Scripture. And I want to give you a couple of things to ponder. When David purchased what later became the Temple Mount, he came up to a guy named Aravna at the end of 2 Samuel. And Aravna was a Jebusite who owned a high place that he used to thresh out his wheat. High places were used because the wind was the best there, and you could throw the wheat up in the air, and the wind would take the dust out or the chaff out, and the good meat of the grain would come down. And and. Throughout the Word of God, you'll see that a high place is a metaphor for being close to God. Okay? That's why we build churches with tall steeples. It's somehow symbolic of reaching up to God and God reaching down to us. And so he bought that threshing floor of Arnavra, and the guy said, I tell you what, Dave, you're a king. You've had quite a career. I'll give it to you. It's yours for free. And David said, no. I will not offer sacrifices to the Lord my God on a place that costs me nothing. 
he recognized at the core of sacrificial worship is just that, a sacrifice, a costly endeavor to show that I'm in, that I've got skin in the game also, that it matters to me. And so I place a value of that importance. And that's what David leaves behind from 2 Samuel. Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. We often use this passage around tax time. Uh, you know, we'll throw that in. It's time to pay the government. If people want to talk about Romans 13 and the governments that God has placed on the earth as being God-ordained. That's great. Render under Caesar. That's a good biblical principle. Often the second half is left behind, though. And render unto God the things that are God's. What are those things? Us. You and me individually, and you and us collectively. We can offer that sacrifice of me and we to him fully. That's what it means to render under God the things that are his. 1 John, 1, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. Remember, we talked about worship is a reaction to God. Ties in nicely with what we learned last week. That God made the first move. He's the initiator in the relationship. When Adam and Eve had sinned in Genesis 3, it was God that went after them to bring them back into fellowship. He is the same consistent character throughout the Word of God, including in his last letters of the Bible to to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he's calling them back into proper fellowship with himself. For we are prone to wander, as the hymn says prone to leave the Lord we love. He recognizes that, has enfolded that into his plan and calls us back and reminds us, hey, I loved you first. Love me back. Jesus, when he was talking to the Samaritan woman in John 4, she was in a state of confusion. They had a mountain where they liked to worship and thought that was the proper place to meet God. And Jesus says, I tell you, it ain't there. It ain't Jerusalem. It's Wherever an individual who truly seeks to worship God and seeks to do that in spirit and in truth is, that's where true worship can happen. And that's what he's seeking, by the way. He is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth and not get caught up in this locale or in this place or in this way, but rather with a heart that is fully devoted and open to him, his way according to his character. Worship, secondly, is a privilege. We've seen this idea uh, that, that we get to experience. We, we get to come here and think about the things of God. Don't even think about it. Don't even wonder if it's a big deal. We get to talk to individuals about the things of the Lord. Pray openly. We get to have groups in our homes that can talk about the things of God. We were sitting in a Dow Seminary classroom um, 1986, and it was the summer, I remember it, And we had all taken full loads in the fall and a full load in the spring, and a lot of us were trying to get ahead, and we were in classes in the summer, and it's a late afternoon class, and, man, your eyes are crossing, and we start, you know, that grumbling, just like you might see here in the book of Malachi, and and, and questioning, man, what are we doing here? What's the purpose of this class? Who's this guy? What does he know? Of course, he knows more than all of us put together, but that's what can happen when you start to think that way, and Man, I wish I was home. You know, I could be taking a nap. I need to get to my job. There's all sorts of things I could be doing. And Prof sort of senses this. He whips out a letter. He says, 
there's a fellow that wanted to be with you men this summer, but he was not able to. Let me read you his letter. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus. My wife and I are still trusting the Lord for scholarship from Dallas Seminary to enable me to enroll in school next year. Our village was attacked by rebel forces and we lost everything we had. I would appreciate were you to email a photocopy of my letter of acceptance from DTS. Kindly consider my request. My letter of request got missing when some unknown gunman stayed in my home after we ran away from home. Just kind of got back to that four foot ten status that that big church had us had in, right? Just completely humiliating. Here we are, sitting in Dallas, top of the world, unique experience. There's a guy who's running from a gunman that would take our place in a heartbeat. It's a privilege that we get to worship, that we get to participate with God. I think it's the most amazing thing biblically there is, that God is so sovereign, he's so powerful, he allows us to participate with him. Could he handle it on his own? Yeah, probably better. But he incorporates our real efforts, our real sense of communion or fellowship, poinonia, and makes that to be the reality. He's so strong, he's so capable, he's so able. As we seek to restore the discipline and joy of worship, let me give you some things to think about as we close. Okay, First of all, remember what God has given to us in Christ. What we've seen is the first act of the play. Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's sort of like the foundation. That's where the sacrificial system is first laid out, where one's approach to God is through sacrificial worship. But the New Testament will tell us that through the the blood of bulls and goats, one can't approach God fully and completely. So there needed to be a more complete sacrifice. And I think the phrase of John the Baptist in the first chapter of, of John's gospel so perfectly captures it when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that whole system of shadows and and blood of bulls and goats that was teaching us something about how to approach God is perfectly captured in that phrase, the Lamb of God. It's as if he throws a lasso around the whole Old Testament and puts it into one nice package. This is what it was pointing to. The one who came and died on a cross for us as the ultimate sacrifice, demonstrating all the principles that we've just talked about costly, sacrificial, intentional, strategic. Those ideas were behind the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that as we affix ourselves to Christ in faith, we can enjoy the full benefits of having a full and final appeasement with God. We are atoned. We are covered with the person of Jesus Christ and all that place their faith in him may recognize and enjoy that full and final sense of forgiveness that the Lamb of God has indeed taken away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is a wonderful privilege that we get to participate, that the recipients of Malachi's letter letter just had a shadow of it. We have now embraced the fullness of him. Worship reflects gratitude. We've seen that as a response. The attitude of gratitude is found throughout the Word of God as an important aspect, an important character. And as we've seen, unfortunately, from a negative lens in Malachi today, is that worship demands our best. No fair taking the shortcut. 
No fear. Just looking good, but not having the heart behind it. In our service, in our prayers, in our giving, in our communion with one another and with God, our best. That deliberate attentiveness that Peterson talked about sort of stuck with me. I want you to contemplate three little applications. Choose to love God completely. We saw that last week, that love is a choice. It's not a feeling. Don't wait for the feeling. The feeling might come, but ultimately love is the choice to set one's affection on another. Choose through the art of discipline and the volition of the will to love God completely. In light of that, choose to worship him fully. Even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't want to, do it. And what will happen is you'll develop a sense of this is correct, this is proper, and the feelings will come and complete the idea. But set the will to choose to love God, to worship him. A little different this week, I want you to meditate on three aspects of Scripture. Because all three of these show sort of how God thinks about worship now through a New Testament lens. We spent some time in the old book. We've seen the importance of Christ sort of tying the old and new together. Let's see how the New Testament authors use those principles from the Old Testament that we just talked about, and we'll close with these. Notice in Luke 19, this is the, the grand week where Jesus is coming into the city, uh, the, the week of the, the preparation, Palm Sunday, all that, about four lines down, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The disciples were the ones who were screaming out these things. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these disciples become silent, the stones will cry out. God will get his worship. He will get his praise, even if he has to make stones cry out. Let's don't let that happen. Let's don't be a part of that silent crowd that would cause stones to cry out in worship and praise of God. Author of Hebrews writes this very cryptically. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. There's that attitude of gratitude again. There's that concept of sacrifice, but now it's the sacrifice of praise, which requires me to know things about God, to let him know that I know these things about of him, and to deliver it in a way that is pleasing to him, that has preparation, that has forethought, that has care. Probably the best, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it sort of captures the essence of the, the New Testament believer and brings in the idea of sacrifice and how we were to live today. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In service to God, in the spiritual realm, he wants us to bring worship, a sacrificial worship that recognizing him as great and us in preparation to bring him something that is worthy of being accepted. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Perfect little verse. By the mercies of God that have come our way, we become that sacrifice. Our lives become that sacrifice to him. 
And, in, and as he receives that sacrifice, we then are risen up, if you will, from that sacrificial table to prove and act what the will of God is, that which is good and perfect and acceptable. If you think about these things this week, this idea of sacrifice, this idea of, of worship, this idea of God and his greatness, I think that would capture nicely what Malachi would have us learn this week. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, thanks so much again for the privilege we've had to come and gather to think about these things. As the old hymn says, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? The ultimate picture of the sacrificial system that we've seen, Lord, throughout Exodus and now Leviticus and then through Christ is the very fact that you sent your son to die on a cross for us to offer the ultimate sacrifice. It was full, it was perfect, it was complete. It was not done with a disdainful attitude. It was, just, it was done to bring glory to your name, to give you respect and honor. Lord, help us participate in that. For those of us that have come to know the, the Savior, may our lives be that, that offering of praise, that spiritual service of worship. May we never get over the fact, Lord, that we, you have allied us with you through your Son, his death and resurrection. Penetrate us with that, Lord. Make us different because of us. Shake us up a bit. Have us change as a result of our encounter with you. Moreover, Lord, after this day, I ask that you give us time outside this place where we might deliberately be attentive to you and think about these things. And how am I doing with you? Am I worshiping you well, Lord? Show me. Affirm what I'm doing correctly, Lord. Help me see where I can improve to be more pleasing to you. We ask all these things now in the name of the precious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. See you guys next week. We'll continue in the book of Malachi. See you then.